Now, if you return to me and turn with me uh, to Second Timothy chapter one, as we continue our journey through Second uh, Timothy, this very deep, profound, and amazing epistle uh, that was given from Paul to Timothy under the inspiration of the Spirit. We uh, continue as we go through this epistle, understanding Paul's situation here. He uh, is anticipating that he is about to be executed in not too long a time. Uh, long enough so that perhaps Timothy can make it over to him, travel to him. So it might take several weeks. Uh, but uh, Timothy would be able to come uh, with him and bring with him uh, certain parchments and books and things like that. And he notices... Even as Paul is anticipating his death, he still sees it as valuable to be learning the truths of Scripture. Because he recognizes something significant about the gospel and something significant about his life. Um, that in reality, it's not going to end. He's merely going to depart for a time. And that is significant. And that, that's really what Paul is trying to push forward to Timothy even as he is anticipating uh, his own execution, uh, which tradition says he was uh, beheaded. And so this reality of suffering uh, comes forth even in verse 8 that, that we had examined last week. But we continue on to verse 9 as we read through verses 9 through 11. Just to maintain context here, we'll, we'll start with verse 8. And um, we'll read through verse 12, just to get context. Uh, so if you will stand out of respect for God's word, if you're able, as we read through God's holy and inerrant word. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been made, has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our Lord remains forever. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we pray, Lord God, that you would reveal the light of life and immortality to us, Jesus Christ himself. And we pray, Lord God, that, that all who are light would be drawn to the to the light which is Christ, 
and that through this preaching of your word, that people will come to believe that their strength, that their faith would be strengthened, that they would be encouraged, that they will be able to lift their eyes into heaven with great encouragement, knowing, Lord God, that in you there is life and immortality and blessing and hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the most difficult realities that we have to come to terms with, with this idea of the gospel, is the reality of suffering in this world. And almost, you almost think to yourself, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? I remember one time seeing a, a reel on Facebook and a girl telling a young man, who's, a man who's trying to present her the gospel. And she says, I suffer all the time as an unbeliever. If, if, if I'm going to suffer as a Christian, what good is that? And he says, because you know, you see, you're suffering. At the end, it's not worth it. It leads to nothing. But you see, there is a a suffering that the Christian has that is filled with hope. That we know that there is something magnificent waiting for us. I want to read to you a portion of Romans chapter 8. Verse 18. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, listen, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the future glory that is about to be revealed to us. You always have to keep your perspective and eyes to the future. I realize Dear believer, how absolutely, it's seemingly impossibly difficult this may be. And it is. But you have to understand, folks, with that, that, that as you look at God's word and as you continually preach to yourself the truth of the gospel and what it means, there is a certain perspective that you will gain. But all the miseries of this world, I, 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 I get it, folks. I get it. Now, I thought about this many times, about how I would introduce this, this sermon. I've done it many ways. Last, last night I went to a friend's house and gave what I thought might be a, an introduction to it. But, but folks, if, if I may turn it personal, because I know each and every one of you to a certain extent. And I know that many of you have certain struggles, inner struggles, outer struggles. And some of you might be going to the pastor, you don't know every sort of battle that is going on within my mind. You couldn't possibly know, and I would say you're correct. 
And you couldn't know every battle that's going in my mind either. You can't. Don't think for a second that because I'm a minister, that somehow there isn't an inward struggle happening within my mind and within my heart. If, if you think that somehow I have less than maybe some of you, maybe you should talk to my wife. But how in the world do we over, overcome that? Paul here, in writing to Timothy, has been, he's been shipwrecked, he's been whipped, he's been abandoned. He, he will talk about him being abandoned by some of his closest friends. The inward struggles even of temptation, we can even think of the temptation and the trials that happen within us, inside of us, outside of us. How, how, how? It's so easy to get distracted from all the garbage that is happening within this world. And yet, Paul has the audacity to speak in, in, in a pain and a world full of death and catastrophe. He has the audacity to speak about a promise of the gospel that is full of life and immortality. And we almost kind of remove ourselves from it as if to say, that sounds nice. Yeah, I came here, I'm listening to the sermon, Life, Immortality, Jesus Christ's Life. You know, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believed in Him would not perish but have eternal life. And it spins off our head like nothing. And then we go on into this world and we got all worked up over all the catastrophes that are happening. In this world. All, and, and we get all worked up. But we forget to remind ourselves one indelible truth. And that is of Romans chapter 8, verse 18. That the sufferings of this age are not worth comparing to the glory that you are about to receive. That's okay. You can say amen. The reason why you are here, believer. The reason why you are here is that there is a purpose. And Paul says you know, to live as Christ, to die is gain. You are here for a certain reason. Your, your suffering, your struggle, your work, your blood, your sweat, your tears. The privilege that you have. The privilege that you have as believers in Jesus Christ. Is that your suffering, your blood, your sweat, your tears, your work that is happening in this age. You know for a fact that it is not worthless. That it doesn't lead in a trail to nothing. It has purpose. It has meaning. And that was the, the, the difference between that young girl and that man who was trying to present her the Gospels. That young girl perceived his suffering to be meaningless. Whereas the man who knows he is in Christ knows that suffering is the path to glory. And we know that because we see the example of Jesus Christ. His path of suffering led to his glory. Now to the point where his suffering in perfection means that every name on heaven and earth, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, you understand that your suffering here on earth is not meaningless, is not purposeless. There is a goal. 
And the goal for you and your purpose here, even through your suffering, to rummage in this world is Christ. To live as Christ, to die is gain. And that is this, as we read it out in our text, as we examine the purpose that God has for us, what is your purpose? Well, you, you, know how many, you know how many unbelieving philosophers have searched for meaning, for the meaning of life outside of Christ? You know where they've gone? I've read a lot of them. Nowhere. But the answer is quite simple. The purpose of your, of your life is to glorify God by proclaiming the excellencies of he who brought you out of darkness into marvelous light. That's your purpose here on this earth. Through suffering, through pain. And as you do that, you do it with the anticipation of that life and immortality being granted to you. Your job here on earth is to proclaim that life and immortality. That's your purpose. You are created you are saved for evangelism. And so we look at that purpose here as we look at it in, in several aspects here as we go to our text. First, the author of your purpose. And we need to know who the author of your... You, you need to know who the author of your purpose is. Who is the author of your purpose? Starts right there with the last word in verse 8. God. God is the author of your purpose. He made you. He determines what you are made for. He determines what your purpose is. Right? Henry Ford created the automobile. He created it with a purpose. He didn't make it to fly. It can't fly. It's not the purpose for flying. It's for the purpose of driving. That's why he made it. In the same way, God made you for a certain purpose. It is to glorify and worship and enjoy him. And here on this earth to proclaim his excellencies. That's what you were designed to do. That's what you were saved to do. You were made by God. You were saved by God. You are preserved by God for that purpose. He determines what that purpose is. And, and look at the God who does it. Paul, in, 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 in displaying what that purpose is, he proclaims who this God is in very specific aspects that has to do with your purpose in life. He saved us, beginning of verse 9, and called us to a holy calling. Saved us, called us to a holy calling. Two-pronged aspects of your salvation, right? That God worked out through Christ. Number one, he saved you. That is, he saved you from the consequences of sin. He saved you from his just wrath. In reality, he saved you from himself. The great wisdom of the gospel is that God demonstrated the way in which he would justify you. While at the same time vindicating his own perfect and holy justice. God, just to put it, put it to you this way. God forgave every single one of your sins. And did it in a way that maintained, justified, and even demonstrated his own holy character. God cannot, cannot tolerate a single sin. And in your salvation... By laying your sin upon his son, Jesus Christ, justified his holiness. That's the great conundrum. Don't be afraid of emphasizing God's holiness. Because it's God's holiness that is demonstrated in the cross. At the same time, his forgiveness and mercy and compassion. That's the great conundrum. How can God be holy 
and yet justify an unholy people? Jesus Christ. He saved you. And in doing so, he demonstrated more powerfully his own perfect and infinite holiness. But it is important to note that God not only saved you, but called you to a holy calling. It's not that God saved you from something, he saved you to something. In this text, Paul is speaking about a, a solidarity of purpose that he and Timothy share in their role as ones who are called by God in Christ. And we share in that same calling. It is a holy calling. That is, it is a call in which we all have been set apart from the world to accomplish in this life. The call that God has now placed on you now serves as the very purpose for your existence here and now on this earth. You are saved. You are breathing because you are to proclaim to the world the holiness and righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. That's the reason why you are here. But second, I want you to understand that God is the sole author of your purpose, and we see that in our text. The sole author is Jesus Christ. The holy calling, as our text says, is not a calling which is according to your works. It's not a calling according to your works. I know that's a little bit confusing to us because we all people always like to say that we do something. But the calling is not according to your works. It's not about you individually even, and it's not about you even as a local body. It's not about how you treat your children or how nice you are. It's not about how obedient you are even. God did not save you according to your righteousness, and it is not your personal holiness that you proclaim. A personal piety, a biblical piety, obedience, that truly demonstrates a godly humility. Now listen, godly humility. This is the great irony of humility. This is what you are to demonstrate in your lives. It should never be to demonstrate how good and obedient you are. Let me say that again. Humility of piety, the humility of piety, should never be to demonstrate how good and obedient you are. It is must, it must first and foremost bring glory to God and proclaim to all that Jesus Christ saves you both from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. The purpose is not to proclaim your obedience, but Christ's obedience and power. These two facets of your salvation describe the purpose of and grace, which is, as your text says, God's own purpose and grace that must be proclaimed. You, you are not saved because of your works. You are saved because of God's purpose and grace. You are not called to a holy calling according to your works, but you are called to a holy calling according to God's purpose and grace. Your purpose is nothing other 
and God's purpose for you. He made you. He formed you. He equipped you. He redeemed you. And He is the one who determines who you are and what you are made for. It should not be a shock to anyone. All that this does is demonstrate one indelible fact. The reason why it is God who works in you and God who determines you and God who preserves you and brings you and grows you and saves you. It's because, quite frankly, God is God and you are not. But the wonderful truth about this holy calling is that God not only designed you to fulfill this purpose, he equips you to do it. He equips you to do it. Ephesians 2.10, I've already alluded to it. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, we just read this, he also predestined, that is foreplanned in eternity past, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God is the author of your purpose. He is the sustainer of your purpose. He is the finisher of your purpose. So we've covered the author, and we can go on and on and on and so many different ways of discussing who this author is and what that means. But secondly, I want to talk about the occasion of your purpose. And we see that in the last part of verse 9. He gave us this purpose, this purpose in grace, in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Or, or literally, more literally, before the time of the ages or before the time of eternity. Kind of an odd phraseology that Paul uses here. But the word gave here, I want you to understand, it's not an act of giving as, as so much as, you know, he gave it to you in eternity past. The word gave here, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, is, is, means that God had really, it's sort of a designation. That word for gave has, has a nuanced meaning in the Greek. In here, it means God designated it to you. It was a designation. It was a calling. You could look at it as, as election. He designated this for you in eternity past. Ephesians 1.4 says he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. This word forgave or designated is an activity of God. And so you have, when it comes upon the activity of God within himself, you always have to think of the eternal and infinite God, the one who dwells above time and space. And so he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, in eternity past, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. This designation of your holy calling and purpose has been laid for you in the infinite and eternal mind of God. There was no beginning to the idea of God thinking up and designating to you this call. It was set forth in eternity in God's mind. That love of God is the same love that grants you assurance that God's purpose for you here, listen, will be accomplished. I love what Joel Beakey once said over the uh, Dr. Joel Beakey's president of the Reformed 
Puritan Reformed Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He spoke one time at, at uh, one of the preachers' conferences at Westminster Seminary. And he says this quote I will never forget. He says, You are immortal until God has fulfilled his purpose for you here. The reason for this is that God's designation for you in Christ has been firmly established in eternity and it's just as assuredly as the God who is your God never changes, that purpose never changes, it is solidified. But it's revealed in time. And it was, first of all, revealed fully in time through the appearance of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We see that here in our text, first part of verse 10. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. This historical event of the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ is the very revelation in time of God's purpose for you. Notice how God's purpose and grace for you is revealed now in time. It is not revealed in your appearance, but at the appearance of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It was a purpose that was designated to you in eternity, but was manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When you look at him, you see your purpose. You see your salvation. The word Jesus means God saves. You see your holy calling to which you are called. You see Jesus Christ suffering to glory, humiliation, exaltation. And remember, your union with Christ involves an entire order of salvation. When I first came here, we started going through what's called the Ordo Salutis, or the order of salvation. Went through this whole plethora of what it means. But in part... In part, your salvation, which begins with forgiveness of sins and justification by your faith, that is a proclamation that you are innocent and unstained in the sight of God, that faith is sustained and matured through a process that's called sanctification. That is God working in maturity in you and a growth of obedience. That's, that's where, where we've quoted Romans 8.29 conforming you into the image of Christ, that's sanctification. God is sanctifying you, forming you more into the image of Christ, and in and through, through that, as you live here, you are proclaiming that Christ to all those around you and calling them to live in faith and be conformed to that same Christ. That sanctification is brought to full bloom in glorification. Either when you pass away in death, either when you... I, I, I love the, the term that really Paul uses here in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. It is brought to glorification either when you depart this world or when Jesus Christ comes. Your salvation by Christ is what enables you to live out your purpose. And so now, this Jesus Christ, who is the restorer of your purpose, we take a look at him. That is, how did Jesus restore your purpose? And we look at that here in verse, second part of verse 10. Who abolished 
death. And this is, this is how he brought back your purpose. He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And we're going to break this apart in several, days, in several ways. First, he abolished death. And, and literally, the, the statement is, on the one hand, he abolished death. On the other hand, he brought life. Because not just he destroyed death, he accomplished life and immortality. And he did it in place of death. So both of these things he did by doing two things. By confronting death on the cross and then being raised from the dead. Remember what we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 and onward? If Christ is not alive, we are still dead in our sins. Jesus Christ had to die. He had to raise from the dead. Had to raise from the dead. And so, both of these things he did and he must have done. William Hendrickson, that's a, uh, one of the former pastors, writes a, uh, a, a pastor who passed away actually recently, um, writes that Christ's death and resurrection means that for the believer, physical death, listen, I love this statement, physical death has been robbed of its curse and has been turned into gain. Physical death has been robbed of its curse and has been turned into gain. To live as Christ, to die as gain. The life and immortality that is spoken of here are really two sides of the same coin, aren't they? The life part of it defines life truly as fellowship with God through Christ. That's what life is. Life is fellowship with God through Christ. You are alive now. You have eternal life, not in the future, now. We have to recalibrate our thinking as to what life actually is. And we have to recalibrate our minds as to what death actually is. Death is separation from God. Life is communion with God, who is life itself. So, as far as the words life and immortality, one speaks of the eternal nature of that life, which is immortality, because God is himself eternal, and the other one speaks to what it actually, actually defines life as communion with God. It is through the gospel, as it says in our text, that Jesus brought to light life and immortality. When you heard this message preached, and when you believed in it, that life, that immortality, was granted to you through the work of Jesus Christ. Let me, let me state it in a, in a more radical form. You are immortal. In a true spiritual sense, and it will be in a physical sense. It is this gospel of immortality through Christ that Paul was placed in his role. And it is the same reason why you are placed in your roles, no matter what role that may be. It may be that you are a mother at home raising children. You are to show the light of Christ to your children. It may be that you are at work 
You are to show the light of life and immortality at your word. Well, how do I do that? How do I do that? Let me give you a real start here. The start would be this. When everybody else is complaining about the catastrophes and getting overwhelmed by all the sufferings and miseries of this world, that your hope never dies. And it never dies in front of them. That you are continuing, even when you're, perhaps you're one of those people that are just, you're so overwhelmed with the suffering and the sin that, that you have done, and perhaps the suffering that is around you, and the death that is around you, and you're tempted to overcome, well then you preach yourself this, this passage here, you preach this to yourself, and then you say, I know who I have, I have life, and that life can be manifested, can be preached, can be revealed to all those around me. Even, even with my hope, it's not a hope that is absolutely perfect. It's a hope that's tinged with sorrow, and many times rightly so. And Jesus cried and mourned when Lazarus had died, even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Death is a catastrophe, and we should all mourn it. But you are not to mourn like others do who have no hope. No hope. No hope of life. No hope of immortality. You have it. You may have this ability to realize it more than others, maybe less than others, but it's still yours. Because remember, that hope that is in you is not because of your works, is it? It's because of Christ. Think about what Paul's going through in this moment that he's writing this letter. It is no mistake that Paul is, anticip is anticipating, it's, it's in anticipation of his death, that he's speaking about this idea of life and immortality. He is about to die. And yet he has the audacity to talk about life and immortality. This is a powerful statement considering what Paul knows about his own situation. What is Paul first and foremost concerned about? He is concerned that Timothy is clearly aware of what the gospel means for believers who are suffering and even those for those who will lose their lives for the sake of the gospel. Union with Christ by faith means life and immortality for all those who are in him. And according to verse 11, the proclamation of that life and immortality to Christ is the reason why Paul is who he is. He is an apostle. He is a preacher. He is a teacher. And this speaks to the entire body of his work. You can even think as Paul is looking back at his life and all that he has done in his ministry. In proclaiming Christ, apostle, preacher, teacher. Paul's very purpose for his entire existence was to proclaim the gospel that reveals the life and immortality that has been provided to you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, your Savior. Believer, the same Paul, the only reason why God has, breathed, has you breathing right now is to proclaim that Christ, the same as Paul. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's your purpose. Your life, your work, your speech, your conduct should all be for the goal of manifesting the excellencies of Jesus Christ who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And the great irony is that an immortal life here in this age is really manifested not in the preservation of your own life, but in the proclamation of the one who is true life, even if it means losing your own. That's how it's powerfully revealed. Let me repeat this again. The irony of an immortal life here in this age in Christ is that it is not revealed, it is not manifested in the preservation of your own life. You should have no concern over that. But in the proclamation of the one who is true life, even if it means losing your own. Have any doubts about that? Matthew 16, 25. Jesus says this, whoever, listen, look at the irony here, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I'll, I'll add a little commentary here, just a couple of words. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But, ironically, whoever loses his life for my sake will actually find it. Let me end this with a pressing question. How much do you believe in that gospel message? Are you willing to bet your life on it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have revealed life and immortality. A great wisdom that is beyond this world, utter foolishness to those who do not believe in you. But Father, you are true life. And it could not be other than that. Because you are God. If you are truly creator and sustainer of this world, where could life possibly come from? It could not come from the preservation of ourselves. It only comes from you. And so Father, we pray that we will be reminded of this great work that you have done in your son, Jesus Christ, having provided us life and immortality, having brought that to light. Lord, we pray that through the power of your spirit, you will give us boldness, confidence, compassion to preach that life, to preach that gospel without fear, that, Lord, that you would be glorified 
And so that even as you have promised in your word, that you would give us life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.